you would turn with me in your New Testaments to the book of Philippians, we'll be studying a very familiar context to us this morning, especially one particular verse and considering some things about that in light of the rest of Scripture. It's wonderful to be with everyone this morning, and it's my hope that this lesson can be beneficial to you, encouraging and edifying. In Philippians chapter 4 and in verse 13, we all know the verse which Paul states, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is not just well known to us, it's not just well known to our friends of the denominations, but it is a well-known passage the world over. Everyone knows Philippians 4 and verse 13. And there are many who have adopted it and adapted it into their mind and life for reasons which are not found in this context or in the context of Scripture as a whole. One of the things that comes to my mind when you think about Philippians 4 and verse 13 is it's often quoted in athletic contexts. You see a professional athlete who gives all glory to God, and that's a wonderful thing upon a victory of a match or whatever it may be. And, and sometimes you even see this, this uh, particular verse noted on a shoe or on a jersey or on, I believe it was Tim Tebow. No, it was John 3.16. Tim Tebow added on his eye black, but I believe that he's probably quoted this verse many times in an athletic context as well. And I think that's an abuse. I think that's an abuse of this particular verse. It, it's wonderful that people are thinking about Jesus and, and talking about spiritual things and starting that conversation, but this verse is not meant to inspire confidence in any temporal matter, which is an unport, unimportant matter. It's a statement that pertains to spiritual matters. We see that in the context but the whole idea of Christ being involved in the quotation and in the utterance of this divine concept shows it has to do with things a lot more important than athletics and other secular events. So when we think about, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, what, what might He be talking about? We know He's talking about something specific in the context, namely contentment, and we'll notice that in a little while. But contentment, I would suggest to you, falls under the general category of faith in Christ, of doing things according to God's Word. And so it would include any spiritual matter. The way that we can be pleasing to God and the way that we can lay up spiritual, eternal treasure, the way that we can be a contributing member of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is through Christ who strengthens us. It is the only way. In John the 15th chapter, Jesus uttered the same concept in different words when He told His disciples that without Me you can do nothing. And this is the opposite side of things. With Me you can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens Me. I can become more like Christ, grow to a maturity of faith through Christ who strengthens Me. I can overcome any temptation in any context in any part of my life through Christ who strengthens Me. I can purify my mind through Christ who strengthens me. I can endure any trial. I can always do God's will. I can evangelize and lead others to Christ and combat any error through Christ who strengthens me. The list goes on. It's endless in regard to what God would require us to do and who He would require us to be as disciples of His and of His Son. 
And so what I want to do this morning is briefly break this statement down into to three different angles. Not necessarily the phrase itself, but consider it in three different ways, because I think that it will help us, or I hope it does at least, understand the verse and understand how it applies to our lives as Christians. I want to suggest to you first that Paul saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is a statement of faith. That almost goes without saying, but it needs to be said, because the way the world uses it is not as a statement of faith. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I, I, I'm walking by faith in Christ. I'm walking in the light. I'm living according to God's Word. And, and through that, Christ strengthens me to do all things. That's usually not how it's used. In fact, most of the people who would utter this statement don't really know much more about Scripture than this verse and some of the other popular ones that the world quotes from time to time. But I would assert to you that this is a statement of faith. It's not merely a philosophical thought that we can do. It's not just this I can do attitude that Paul is enlisting in the minds of Christians. In fact, Paul very explicitly states throughout his writings that he's not a philosopher. And the things that he says, it's not about philosophy or some kind of encouraging word from a secular mind, but it's, it's about faith in Christ. It's about walking according to the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 17, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And he notes, not with wisdom of words. And the reason why not with wisdom of words, he says, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. If he is approaching the preaching of the gospel in a philosophical way, that he's He's inspiring confidence in men through some normal fields of thought that are across the, the particular um, environment of that time, the philosophies that were popular. It would make this null and void. In fact, to equate the gospel message in its purity, preached by a man like Paul or Apollos, as he mentioned, to equate it with a philosophy is to make your faith be in the wisdom of men and not in the power of God. And regardless of how right the message was, your perception of it being wrong means it is completely impotent in regard to your life and its working. In chapter 2, he mentioned the presence that he found himself in among them and weakness and fear and in much trembling. And he, he says in verse 4 that his speech and his preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So when we read in Philippians 4.13, Paul, Paul preaching, Paul writing by inspiration, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's not enlisting to a philosophy of man. He's not encouraging a simple I can do attitude. It's more than that. It's, it's not about training our minds in a, a secular way to, to do secular things. It's it's more than that, and it's more powerful than that. In fact, the Apostle Paul actually discouraged this kind of living, philosophical living. In Colossians 2, in verse 4, he says, I say these things, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and steadfastness of your faith. He goes on in verse 8 to say, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Then he says these powerful words. 
For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. I want to tell you that while we can read something like a self-help book that is authored by the latest and most popular philosopher or psychologist, you name it, in the world today. We, we can read that, and there's nothing wrong with that inherently. And we may even pick up some good pointers to, to be a better employee at work, to be a better student at school. But I want to tell you, picking up a, a self-help book, a philosophical book, a book written by a psychologist with, with nothing spiritual in mind, it's not going to make us a better Christian. It's not going to get us to heaven. This is more than just an I can do attitude. If that's how we approach this verse, that I can do just because I'm convincing myself that I can do. I, I trust the philosophy that if I just think positively, positive results will come. We will fail spiritually. We won't be better Christians. So we need to understand this particular expression by Paul as a statement of faith. Because that's what spiritual success requires. You know, the reason why I think in many ways and in many contexts we fail spiritually is because of an I can't do attitude. But I want to tell you that's more than just a, a pessimistic way of living. And that's, that's more than just a, a lazy way of, of avoiding convincing yourself that if you put in the work you can do. It, it's more than that. It's actually an expression and a manifestation of a lack of faith as a Christian. When God tells us to do something, and we have this attitude that I can't, it, it's not mere pessimism. It's not humility. I think some Christians try to convince themselves that they're being humble by saying, I, I just can't. And you can't expect me to, to be able to do this way and accomplish these great things. There's no humility in that. And there's no arrogance in saying I can do if you're saying I can do through Christ who strengthens me. It's a difference between faith and unbelief. That's what Paul's saying. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It means he has faith in Christ and he can do what Christ requires him to do. Consider the lack of faith, the I can't do situations that we see in Scripture and the equating of that with unbelief and failure to trust in God and that He never commands us to do something that we can't possibly do. We're familiar in Matthew chapter 17 when a man came to Jesus asking Him to have mercy on his son. He's an epileptic and suffers severely and often falls into the fire and often into the water. He, he said, I brought him to your disciples. They couldn't cure him. And then Jesus said, O faithless and perverse generation, how, shall I, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. He cast the demon out. And then his disciples said, why could we not cast it out? And he doesn't say that you just had an I can't do attitude. You, you were too pessimistic. And he doesn't even say just you didn't have enough faith. He said because of your unbelief. And then I want us to be impressed by what he says after that. Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And he mentions, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And I would suggest to you, that's a persistence of faith that is displayed. 
But you notice he doesn't say that you just didn't have enough faith. He said, because of unbelief, you didn't have faith. And that's why I think he says, if you just have the smallest amount of faith, the mustard seed, smallest seed, then you can do anything that I tell you to do. And he's not saying that you have this miraculous power all of a sudden and you can move mountains and you can throw cars off the cliff with your mind and and you can do whatever it is that you want to do. If I told you to move that mountain and you had a mustard seed's worth of faith, you could move it. And so it's not necessarily even the quantity of faith that the Bible stresses but it's the quality of faith if you it's it's faith at all if you have faith in Christ then you can do what he says that's why he says i can do all things through Christ who strengthens me i think that we see a similar thing in Luke 17 when after Jesus told them that you basically need to be able to forgive your brother who sins against you if he repents any amount of times an unlimited amount of times even in a day Now, that's difficult to do. And I think that's why in Luke 17 and verse 5, his apostle said, increase our faith. You might ask the question, did they have faith in Jesus? I think their faith was growing. Their understanding was growing in regard to who he was. Their faith would no doubt be greater and more substantial and solid after the resurrection and as they are commissioned to go into the world and fulfill what we read of in Matthew 28 and Mark 16 and so on and so forth. But they had faith at this point. And so the question was not, do I have enough faith? But, but do I understand what that means for me? So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. He's saying you've got what you need right now to forgive your, your, brother, uh, forgive your brother in this way and in, in this amount of times. If, if I told you to do it, not only do I expect you to do it, but I know you can do it. And so this isn't just a philosophical statement. It's a statement of faith. In Romans 10 and verse 17, we we see the connection then with the commands of God. If I told you to move this mountain, if I told you to pull up this tree and be planted in the sea, you could do it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So when we think about this, it's merely about trust. Conviction which leads to trust in God's Word. You think about another example of unbelief in Matthew, the 19th chapter, when the rich young ruler said, what else do I lack? And Jesus said, sell all you have and give to the poor. And he went away sorrowful for he had many possessions. That's when Jesus said, it's impossible, or with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But then we come in with the phrase, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's what Christ was saying. With men, it's impossible. If you are just going to rely upon yourself and your own knowledge and maybe some field of philosophy that can give you the motivation and energy to do those things and make those kind of sacrifices, if that's what you're going to do, you're going to fail every time. It is only the internal truths, infallible truths of the gospel that have to do with the Son of God and His revelation to mankind that can grant strength, inspire confidence and faith to do what God expects us to do. That's what He meant in Philippians 4 and verse 13. And brethren, this is why we've got to study. If faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, then we can't do unless we study our Scriptures. We study and fervently meditate upon them. 
and do so with the intention to apply them. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul shows the power of God's Word and that it is inspired of God and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. But you notice verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what he's saying in Philippians 4.13. Every good work, all things can be done through Christ. And Christ strengthens through His Word. We are those who are created in Christ Jesus for good works. He prepared beforehand that we should walk in. And the only way we can walk in them is if we have faith in Christ through His Word. I want to tell you though, it's also a statement as it is related to a statement of faith. It is also a statement of unification with Christ. Faith is more than just an intellectual comprehension and understanding of Scripture. Faith is commitment. Faith is, is uniting with the object of faith, Christ. It's about fellowship and walking in the light as He is in the light. If we are united with Christ, we have faith in Him. But then if, if that faith comes together with works like James talks about in James 2, and it's made mature, it's made substantive, it's made real, then we are united with Christ. That's when things start happening. That's when we can do all things that are required of us. We're strengthened through Christ to do all things. Not simply knowing the facts, not simply having a superficial knowledge of Christ or a subjective view of Christ. I've got a personal relationship with Christ. And usually what that means when it's said is that my relationship may be different than yours, but I know Christ and He knows me. It's about a true union with Christ. It's allowing Christ to take over in our lives. I'll give you an example of the opposite of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in a context of eating meat offered to idols, he speaks about knowledge and he speaks about love and he speaks about being known by God. He says concerning things offered to idols, we know that not, we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by Him. I think we're familiar with the context. Here you've got a group of people who know the will of Christ permits them to eat meat offered to idols. And so their thought is, I know that. I know Christ. And so if I know that and I'm convinced of that, I should be able to do it even if my brother can in good conscience do it. But in, in saying you know Christ simply based on those facts is to fool yourself because the one who really knows Christ is the one who's united with Him. And the one who's united with Christ doesn't just have an intellectual understanding of His will, but also has a way of life that exhibits who Christ was in the flesh. He's walking in love. God is love. And Jesus was a manifestation of that. So I know that I can eat meat offered to idols. But, but what this really is about is being united with Christ. Based on that knowledge, I, I can act with confidence, but I also know the rest of the Scripture, and I, I know the more fundamental principles of the Gospel. And, and God wants us to walk mercifully. God wants us to walk in love. And so I may be able to have the liberty to do this, but if I really know Christ, I'm going to forgo that liberty because it's going to hurt my brother. You see that? I don't just know. I, I'm not strengthened to do all things because of my mere knowledge of Christ, but because I'm married to Him. I'm united with Him. There is a seamlessness. When people see me in the world, they should see Christ. That's very biblical. That's what the Scripture says. If that is true, if that's our practice, if that's the kind of faith that we have, 
then yes, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. This is essentially what Jesus is saying in Matthew 11 and verse 29 when He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, you will find rest for your souls. He's saying, give me complete control. Like an animal has no control over the master who has trained him and the yoke is on that animal. That animal is doing what the master is telling him to do, directing him to do. That's what Jesus is saying. This is what Paul meant when he said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And I think that in Philippians, especially chapter 4, where verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, comes about, we see that unification that led to Paul being able to do all things. You know, it starts, I think, back in chapter 3 when he speaks about our citizenship is in heaven. That's what we're eagerly waiting for. And then he says in chapter 4 and verse 1, So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. What he's saying is that the Christian doesn't live like those who are on earth because his home is somewhere else. You know, if you ever went on vacation to another country, and I never have, but we understand that we're still Americans and we're not assimilating to that country. If I go down to Mexico to the beach for a vacation, I'm probably not going to learn Spanish. I'm not going to adapt to their culture. I'll enjoy my time while I'm there, and then I'm going back home to America. And and people know that I'm an American based on those things. I'm not assimilating to the culture. I'm not learning the language. I'm not even worried about that because I know I'm only here for a temporary amount of time. And equate that with spiritual matters. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so I'm living a a spiritual life, sticking out like a sore thumb because of it, because the rest of the world, they're not living for the eternal. They're, They're acting and being motivated by carnal and temporary qualities and attractions. And so being united with Christ is understanding that the way that He lived in part was due to the fact that He knew Heaven. He, that was his home. In John 17, he said, Restore me with that glory I had before I came. I finished your will. You think about that. Jesus left heaven and came to earth. And his main goal in fulfilling the will of the Father and bringing salvation to mankind is, is to be restored to that glory, go back to the Father. He had that goal in mind the whole time. That's what he, he lived for. That's what urged him. That's what motivated him because his citizenship was somewhere else, because his home was somewhere else, he was able to live like he should live. You know, that's being united with Christ. I know my world is not, uh, my, my home is not in this world, but it's somewhere else. And that's going to translate into other aspects of life. In verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. And, and the way that we can always rejoice is is emphasizing and prioritizing spiritual matters in our life. That's what he means when he says rejoice in the Lord always. And that's why as he writes this epistle from prison, he can say, I'm still rejoicing that the gospel is preached, even though some of the ones who are preaching the gospel are doing it to add affliction to my chains. All he cares about is the spiritual. That's why Jesus could come in the flesh in a form of no comeliness, a form that is despised and rejected and and is filled with sorrow and pain and anguish and still rejoiced to the very last breath He took. That's what it means to be united with Him. 
which will translate into the way we treat each other and the way we act in certain situations. In verse 5, he says, Let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. That word gentleness is translated in the ASV as forbearance and in the ESV as reasonableness and as gentle spirit in the New American Standard Bible. I like Art and Gingrich's definition of it. It's not insisting on every right of letter of law or custom, yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant. In the previous verses, he mentioned two women who had problems. And he's encouraging the brethren to help them get along, help them to resolve these differences. And one of the ways those differences would be able to be resolved is unification with Christ. How can I resolve this issue? I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. What does that mean? Well, Christ wasn't wanting to settle a score. He wasn't wanting to get His pound of flesh. And it's not that He was undermining the justice of the law, but if He could allow something to be let go, if He could take an action and make a choice that would be better for this other person and still uphold what is right and true, he was going to let himself be wrong. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul requires. When brethren were going to law against one another, he said, why don't you just let yourself be wrong? Then it's, it's not sweeping a sin under the rug. It's not failing to rebuke one who is in sin. But it's this, this humility of mind knowing that God will settle things. And God does know who's right and who's wrong. God does know your heart. And all I care about is being right with God, not in this situation. And the only way that happens is a unified life with Christ, being united in His will and His motivations. He goes on to talk about how we're to meditate or to pray in regard to our anxieties and not let them overcome us. Christ was a man of prayer. He was able to get through those difficult situations because he gave it to God and he trusted God had that and he could take care of it and he was caring about it. And so united with Christ, we can do all things. We can overcome those anxieties. We, we do what he does. In verse 8, he goes on to talk about how we need to meditate on these spiritual matters. How was it that Christ was able to overcome temptations? How was it that Christ was able to overcome adversity? No matter what it was, that the devil threw at him, Christ was able to overcome because he always was chewing on spiritual matters in his mind. He was always thinking about spiritual things. His mind was pure because of that. And so it was always filled. So when the devil tried to throw something into his mind, there wasn't room for it. He was meditating on these things. But he wasn't just meditating on these things. Verse 9, he was doing those things. Paul says, these things you learn and received and heard and saw in me, these do and the God of peace will be with you. How can I do all things through Christ who strengthens me? I live how he lived. He didn't allow any room for erroneous thought, impure thoughts. He was completely and totally consistent and persistent in the things of God, which leads us to the context of verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does he mean by that? In the context, he's talking about contentment. And it's when he brought up the care that the Philippians had for him. He said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. But notice in verse 14, he qualifies his statement. Why is he glad? that the Philippians were able to send him monetary support in the preaching of the gospel. You know, my first thought might be inclined to, to be, if I'm receiving support, I'm, I'm glad that I'm able to, feel, uh, to, to receive the full support that I have because I'm able to support my family. I'm, I'm able to buy groceries. I'm able to do what I need to do to get by. That's not Paul's thought. 
his main focus that he's glad about their support of him. Verse 14, You have done well that you shared in my distress. And you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. There is no one that can think that way unless they are completely influenced by the gospel of Christ. Completely influenced by loving others. How can I be content? Well, I trust that God is in control. I trust that if I seek Him first in His kingdom, all these things shall be added to me, Matthew 6 and verse 33. So I pray to Him and offer up those prayers with full confidence that He can take care of these things and I don't need to worry about them any longer. All of that Jesus was doing in His life. And then the added thought of, since I'm not a citizen of this earth and I'm a citizen of heaven, I'm not really seeing everything through a physical lens. I'm not seeing that the Philippians' support to me, Paul is saying, was X amount of dollars, X amount of denarii, whatever the money was. But it was heavenly treasure to their account. I rejoice because you're right with God. You're pleasing in God's sight. What can we not do if that's our attitude? If that is our focus, if that is our attitude, if we are united with Christ in that way, certainly we can do everything that God requires us to do. And very quickly, lastly, it's obviously a statement of commitment. He could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but if he's not actually committed, if the commitment that inheres within that message is not actually within his soul, he will not be able to do all things. And the strength of Christ will not be with him because it's only with those who are committed disciples. That's why Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. It's not just about knowing it. It's not just about having a goal. It's about practicing it. It's about being fully committed. This is why Jesus said in Matthew, rather in Mark chapter 8, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, Jesus said these words that we're all familiar with. He said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit if a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's commitment. And that's the degree of commitment that the gospel requires even being able to lay our lives down for Him. To be able to sacrifice anything in our life, no matter what it is. And you know, sometimes someone will warn us in secular life, make sure you don't put all your eggs in one basket. If it doesn't work out, then you have this reserved over here. And I understand the wisdom and logic in that in certain aspects of life. But Paul, or Jesus, is essentially telling us, put all your eggs in this basket. That's what commitment is. If you have reservations, if you think in the recesses of your mind, your subconscious is is actually thinking, I'm going to follow Christ 99%, but there is a measure of doubt in my mind that He may not exist. And if He doesn't exist, I want to have some kind of joy in this life. I want to enjoy something in this life. I don't want to be doing all this for nothing. That's not commitment. 100% is what Jesus requires then we can do all things 
through Christ who strengthens us. Paul was fully committed. He tells us in the third chapter that he left everything to gain Christ. He expressed that in his life. You might remember in Acts 21 where the Holy Spirit was saying that if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to experience a lot of adversity and pain and anguish. You'll be bound. And so the brethren, knowing that prophecy, urged him not to go. And he said, I'm ready to die. That's commitment. That's commitment. We can't do what God requires us to do without that kind of faith, unity with Christ, and commitment to do His will. That's what Philippians 4 and verse 13 means. It's what it should mean to us as we take it into the world. If you would please bow with me and we'll have a word of prayer and be dismissed to our classes. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day you blessed us with. We are mindful that everything good and perfect comes from you. We're thankful for the freedom that we have to assemble as we're doing this morning. We're thankful for the blessing of this new physical building to assemble at. We pray that you would bless us in our efforts in this community and in this location, that we'd always do your will, bring other souls who are lost to you, and to strengthen and edify one another in your spirit. We thank you for the strength that you provide us through your son. We're thankful for his example and for the faith he incites in us and for the hope of heaven we have because of what he's done according to your will. We're thankful for your word. We know your commandments are not burdensome, but they're for our salvation and for our uniting with your Son and the Holy Spirit in you in eternity. We pray that you'd help us always see them as such. Have faith, be united with Christ, and have the commitment it takes to be your devoted disciples, your faithful people, and to get to heaven and spend eternity with you. We're thankful again for your Son's sacrifice and the hope of heaven we have in Him. We pray that you'd be with us as we go to our Bible classes. Help us focus on the spiritual. Help us be edified. And we pray that you're glorified in it. And it's in your Son's name we pray.